Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. They said if the Glen and Fontan didn't work, they would put me at the top of the list for a transplant. What is trichospinotresia? What kind of complications did Amanda Brown face over the last three decades? What surgical interventions have helped Amanda overcome her cardiac challenges? Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the mother of an adult with a congenital heart defect. My child has undergone three open heart surgeries and is 27 years old. This is the reason I am the host of your program. Today's show is Overcoming Challenges with Tricuspid Atresia, and our guest is Amanda Brown. We'll start today's program by learning a bit about Amanda in segment one. In the second segment, we're going to talk about complications that Amanda has had. And in the third segment, we'll discuss Amanda's pacemaker and future prognosis. Born in 1988, Amanda Brown was diagnosed with tricuspid atresia, ventricular septal defect, or VSD, and hypoplastic right heart syndrome, or HRHS. She had her first of six surgeries at three months old, which was a pulmonary artery banding. At four, she developed endocarditis and had to have the PA banding redone. Amanda required no other surgeries until age 14, when she had the Glenn and Fontan done. Apart from a sternal wire removal at age 22, Amanda was well until 32 years of age when she began to develop a range of symptoms as her heart struggled. She had a dual lead pacemaker implanted, which was complicated and required two procedures due to her Fontan anatomy. Amanda lives in Indiana and works as a cardiac monitor technician. She also runs Amanda's Blankets, where she makes customized blankets for adults, children, babies, and pets. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. You told me in your bio that you were born with tricuspid atresia, and not all of my listeners know what that means. So can you tell us a little bit more about your CHD diagnosis? Yes. So when my parents conceived me, they didn't have insurance. So that's why my mom couldn't have an ultrasound. So when I was born, I had no apparent issues that indicated that I had a congenital heart defect. So when I was three months old, my parents took me to a free healthcare to get my first shots, Mm -hmm. but I was underweight, so I couldn't receive them. And while I was there, I met a guy named Dr. Joe Calzerato. He listened to my heart and heard a slight murmur. He then referred me back to my pediatric doctor who delivered me, Dr. Doty. And those two doctors thought my umbilical duct hadn't closed 
And after a certain time, your umbilical duct is supposed to close or it could be deadly. But mine oh, had I didn't even know that. Yeah, it can be I, deadly? Yeah, I think after 30 days, if it doesn't close, the child can die. Oh my gosh, I've never heard of that before. Okay, so that's concerning. You had already made it past that period of time and you hadn't died. So clearly it wasn't that, but they knew something else was wrong, right? Yes. So from there, they referred me to Evansville, where there was a Riley Children's Hospital Mm -hmm. cardiologist down there. His name was Dr. Hurwitz, and he listened to me, and he leaned more towards the worst diagnosis, which was the tricuspid artresia. Ten days later, my parents took me up to Riley Children's Hospital, where I met my pediatric cardiologist, Dr. Randall Caldwell, and there they diagnosed me with tricuspid artresia a BSD, and hydroplastic right heart syndrome. Tricuspid artresia is where the tricuspid valve between the right atrium and the right ventricle don't form. Okay, so you saw a lot of different doctors and a little bit of confusion. But you know, folks, this was over 30 years ago, and we didn't have as much knowledge back then. There was no Dr. Google. There were no Facebook groups to join. And it was a whole different world back then. Your parents must have been so scared. They were. It's amazing that you made it as long as you did before you were diagnosed. That's really definitely phenomenal, isn't it? It is. So you had six open heart procedures. That is so many. And you had the Glenn and the Fontia when you were 14. That's surprising. Nowadays, Most of the kids get the gland, golly, between one and three. So I'm surprised that they waited so long before you had your gland. Were you able to develop normally or were you a scrawny kid? I was a scrawny kid. Were you considered failure to thrive? Yes, I was. Mm. What did your parents do about that? Did you have to have a feeding tube? No, they had to give me a special formula. I didn't have... The formula that you get in the store, I had to have special formula. Also, my mom didn't breastfeed with me because with the symptoms, I had a hard time feeding and I would tire easily. And mm-hmm. my mom said I never cried because that was just too much work for my heart to do if I cried. So, Your mom and I should talk. I had the same experience with my heart warrior. I knew something was wrong. Babies should cry when they're wet. Babies should cry when they're hungry. My little baby was just too tired, just like you. What about as you got older? Did you have to drink stuff like carnation instant breakfast? Yeah, like and stuff like that. I did. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Then you hit 14. Now, what year was that? That was in 2002. Okay. So 2002, you're 14. Pediatric cardiology is much more advanced by this point. And they said, we think she needs the Glenn. Yeah. It was like towards the end of my sixth grade year, I started experiencing a lot of shortness of breath. I'd walk maybe just a few feet and get very winded. I remember going on my school trip to the zoo and I had to be pushed in a wheelchair. Four days after my 14th birthday on July 18th, they went ahead and did the Glenn procedure, which they usually do that on kids much younger than I was. And they said if the Glenn and Fontan didn't work, they would put me at the top of the list for a transplant. 
So you got the Glen on July 18th when you were 14. How long did you wait before you had the Fontan? I had to wait till November 5th that year to receive the Fontan. Oh my goodness. So you only had the Glen for four months before you had the Fontan? Correct. Had you even really healed from the Glen before you had the Fontan? Not really. Right. I mean, it took my heart warrior a full year when he was a teenager and had open heart surgery. It takes a while to recover, especially when you're older. Yes. I bet you remember a lot from that time. Yeah. So after I had the gland, I spent two weeks in the hospital because I had developed a bed sore on my bottom and they had to turn me every two hours. And then when I went home from that, the Glenn didn't really improve my heart situation. So I went home on supplemental oxygen because my sats were in the 50s. And my dad's oldest brother from California came home because we just didn't think I would make it to November 5th to receive the Fontan procedure. Wow. Okay. So you were on pins and needles. You weren't sure if you were going to make it. You probably weren't able to go to school at this time, were you? That was in the summer. So I hadn't started my seventh grade year just yet. Mm -hmm. But school starts, what, August, September? August, yeah. So my mom actually homeschooled me my seventh grade year. Mm -hmm. Well, it makes sense. She didn't need you being exposed to a whole bunch of germs, and it would have been so strenuous for you to have to walk to all of those different classes. That just makes sense. But then you did recover enough to have the Fontan. Tell me what you remember about that. So before I went in and had the Fontan, I had a cold sore at the corner of my mouth and my mom was afraid when they put the vent tube down me that vent tube would sit on that cold sore and it would get worse when I came out of that fontan that cold sore was gone and my oxygen sats went from the 50s to the upper 90s wow that is amazing and you must have felt so much better too oh yes I did do you think that being in the hospital, having those two open heart surgeries when you did, that that influenced your decision to go into the medical field yourself? Oh, yes, definitely. I've wanted to be a nurse ever since I was little, but if we ever had to run a code on someone, I would not be able to do several rounds of CPR without getting tired. And when I have to renew my CPR, I always have to have several of my coworkers help me out to run a small code because just one set of compressions just wears me out. I knew I wanted to do something with hearts. So I looked into EKG technician where you can watch cardiac monitors or you can put people on treadmills or you can put people on halter monitors. And in 2014, I received my license. Night Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. Thank you. 
This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Let's start this segment by talking about some of the complications that you've experienced in your life, because it sounds like the first serious complication you had was when you had the endocarditis, but then you also talked about bed sores and this other sore that you had. So, oh my goodness, you have had so much to deal with. Tell me about some of the experiences you've had with some of these complications. So the endocarditis, I don't remember because I was only four years old, but I sat down with my parents and they told me all that they could remember. It was discovered in 1992. I had developed strep throat and that's what caused my endocarditis Uh and one of my first symptoms my mom noticed was that I was crying constantly when I didn't cry hardly at all so she knew something was wrong we then went to my new peds doctor Dr. Keys and from there he sent me back up to Riley to Dr. Caldwell my pediatric cardiologist And they sent me via ambulance this time because it was more serious. And my mom said she remembers that she could not ride in the back with me in those days. Uh They had her ride in the front. And then dad followed in his vehicle. That must have been so hard for her. She couldn't keep her eye on you to make sure that everything was okay. But obviously it wasn't too traumatizing for you because you said you don't really have any memory of it. Uh What a blessing. What a blessing that you don't remember that, because I would imagine at four years old, being in an ambulance could be a really scary experience. She said that I actually slept through the entire thing. So you got transferred to the hospital. They probably punched you full of antibiotics. My endocarditis caused me to go into stage four heart failure. My mom said I looked like a tick had popped on me, like I was so full of fluid and My heart surgeon, Dr. John Brown, he had to go back in and clean all the infection out and redo that PA banding because that endocarditis had rotted part of that PA banding off. Oh, my gosh. How horrible. And that was was 31 days up at Riley. Ah, that's interminable. Okay, so that was a long time, but you really have no recollection of being in the hospital at that time? You don't even remember riding in the wagon or anything like that, like they usually do with kids when they're in the hospital? No. Wow, that's amazing. You know, I think our brains are brilliant, and they are able to just kind of block out things sometimes that we probably (laughs) don't need to remember. I bet your mom wishes that was true for her. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my gosh. So was your mom able to stay at the hospital with you? Yes, she was. Well, that's a blessing. Okay, so thankfully you don't remember that. I bet your mom and I could have a cup of tea and have some PTSD moments talking about it for her, though. But there are some other complications that you've had that you do remember. Tell me about some of those. 
So seven years after I had the Glenn and Fontan surgery, I started having lots of pain, like in the middle of my breastbone. And I noticed a wire was poking at my skin, but it hadn't protruded through my skin just yet. And my skin was red and hot. So I contacted my surgeon up at Riley and they had me come in for a consult. And he said, well, some of your sternal wires have come out of the breastbone and are starting to poke at your skin he said we need to go in there he said and it's been a while since you had your surgery he said i can take some of them out and then you will be fine and he said we can kind of glue some of your breastbone back together so they went in and he removed some of the wires and he just did like a mini sternotomy on me that is amazing i'm kind of surprised they actually had to open you up to do that. Was there an infection around those wires? What caused them to all of a sudden start causing you problems? They don't know what caused them to start coming out of the breastbone. And I believe there was infection and they treated me with antibiotics. Okay. Well, then that makes sense. And it makes sense that they had to go in there and remove them and clean it up and just reinforce everything. Oh my goodness. So that was definitely something you remembered. How long were you in the hospital for that? I actually was in there for a day. So I went in there and the next day they released me. And of course, then I had to have a pillow against my chest again for a couple of weeks. And then about two to three weeks, I was healed. It was a lot easier than having your whole chest opened up, your breastbone cut and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that surgery was a lot easier. Yeah. Well, good. I can almost take a deep breath with that one. And by then you were an adult. By then you were 18. Yes. Were you there by yourself or were your parents still there with you? My parents went with me. Good. I would expect them to, (laughs) but I know that when my son turned 18, he was like, okay, mom, I've got this. You've been raising me all my life for this. I don't need you to go to any more of my appointments. And Man, that was hard. That was so hard, but I did want him to be independent. So it's a lot different with girls than it is with boys, I think. (laughs) I'm with me to my appointments and my dad still takes me to my appointments. And now I'm almost 34 years old and I wouldn't have it any other way. And I think I'd feel lost without one of them not being there. Well, I try to tell my son that it helps to have another set of ears, another set of eyes there, somebody else who can listen and knows your history because you don't remember things from when you were four or from when you were an infant. And we parents, we remember those things. It's very smartphones back in those days to keep track notes, you know, so. Exactly. Exactly. Sounds like you have really good parents and they still live near you or do you all still live together? I moved back in in 2017 financially and then with me having my last open heart last year just staying with them and I helped them out and they helped me out. I love that. Well before we end this segment I know from your Facebook page that you had a stroke in the past. Can you talk to me about that time in your life? That stroke happened on January 19th, 2020. That morning, I went to take care of the neighbor's dog. I felt fine. That evening, my partner and I went to Walmart to get groceries. On the way home, my partner noticed that my speech was slurring. And when I got home, I couldn't figure out why I could not 
get the groceries in the house, I kept dropping the laundry soap and couldn't figure out why I couldn't keep a hold of the laundry soap. And then I also had to go to the bathroom really bad and I couldn't figure out why my brain couldn't tell my bladder not to use the restroom. Had a hard time zipping my pants up or even pulling my pants up. So I yelled for my mom and she had me come sit down and my whole left side was very numb. I couldn't figure out why I couldn't pick up my arm. My dad thought it was my sugar because I do have pre-diabetes and he thought maybe my sugar was dropping and we checked my sugar and it was fine. And so from there, my mom's like, I think we should take you to the hospital. So they took me to the hospital that I work at and I was kind of out of the window for getting the TPA. So they wanted to ship me to University of Louisville for further investigation, but the hospital I work at, they are partnered with the UFL stroke team. So they kept me in the ICU where I work at. And I tell people that I had a CVA and the way they described my diagnosis is think of a water hose being kinked off. So no water's coming out. That's what my artery was doing in the back of my head. It was kinked off and that's how my stroke happened. Wow. Okay. So we just threw a whole bunch of jargon out there for my listeners who may not be completely familiar with all of this. So a CVA is a cerebral vascular accident, and some people call that a mini stroke. It's not as scary as a full-blown stroke. The TPA is an IV medication that has to be administered within three hours of the stroke happening. And it sounds like your parents maybe didn't get you to the hospital fast enough for that to happen. Right. And we should have called an ambulance, but we didn't. Financially, I was thinking I didn't need another bill. So partner at the time put me in his truck and he sped like no other and he got me there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so scary. And I can just imagine your parents maybe being a little bit in denial. Oh, it's not a stroke. Maybe it's just her sugar. Maybe she's just a little tired or you don't want to go there. You don't want to think, oh, this is a stroke because it's just so terrifying. You are a young person. You generally associate strokes with somebody who is much, much older. So it was too late for you to get the IV TPA, but you got there. They identified what it was. They said it was a CVA or a cerebral vascular accident. I know from having studied speech pathology at Our Lady at the Lake a million years ago, that some people with CVAs have a complete recovery. What was your recovery like? I have no more speech issues unless I will be talking and then I forget something. But I think I had that before the stroke. It comes with getting older. And (laughs) the only side effect that I have is my long-term memory is gone. Like if I went on a trip like a couple of years ago, I can't remember what I've done on that trip. My dad says. That's got to be disappointing for you. Hopefully you have lots of pictures to help you to remember at least that way, even if you can't have that immediate recall. If you see pictures, does it help to jog your memory at all? Yes. Yeah, a little bit it does. Do you keep a diary? I don't, but I try to write things down. And it's another thing, like my short-term memory is kind of shot, but I kind of had that problem before the stroke. So if I don't write it down, it doesn't get done. 
I'm right there with you, girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) I have to write down everything anymore. I'll forget about it. I cannot remember it. So of all the different complications that you've had, and it sounds like you've had quite a few, Amanda, what do you think has been the most difficult for you? I would probably say the stroke. Because trying to figure out why I couldn't go to the bathroom, why I couldn't pull up my pants, that was the scariest event out of my life so far. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect or CHD community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. In this segment, I'd like to talk to you, Amanda, about your pacemaker. So can you tell us about the symptoms that led you to needing a pacemaker? Yes. So last year, around April 2021, I started retaining a lot of fluid in my belly and my leg. I was retaining so much fluid that I kept getting asked if I was expecting, and I wasn't. I had shortness of breath all the time. I would walk just a little bit and just be so short of breath or so dizzy the room spun. I had lots of chest pain, lots of palpitations. And when I had the palpitations, I thought my heart was racing. And I would look down at my Apple watch that one of my doctors recommended that I wear and my heart rate would be in the 40s. Yeah. In the 40s? In the 40s. Oh my gosh. Um, When I was active and then when I would sleep at night, I would dip in the 20 to 30 range in my heart rate. Okay, so we're dealing with bradycardia. Yes. When my heart rate would dip so bad at night, my oxygen sats would dip so bad that I started satin in the 80s, and then I wasn't sleeping good, and then I started having really bad migraines to where my migraines were getting worse, and I was starting to miss a lot of work because I would wake up with migraine, and there'd be no way because my vision was blurred, I was dizzy. I couldn't be around anything that made noise or light. So my local cardiologist, Dr. Adam Dawkins, he specializes in congenital heart defects as well. He had me wear a Xyle patch monitor for a week. And that Xyle patch showed low heart rates of 20 to 40 beats per minute. It also showed that I had VTAC and also SVT. My adult cardiologist up at Riley, Dr. Markham, and my electrophysiologist, Dr. King, got the ball rolling. They mm-hmm. went to put the pacemaker lead wires in, but my heart is enlarged. So they had to reopen me back up to get one of the pacemaker wires on the back of my heart. 
And then my pacemaker battery is on the left side of my stomach. So that's where my second incision is. Well, sure. At least they have a little bit of room over there that they can put the battery. Mm -hmm. And then the way my Fontana is set up, they usually put a pacemaker up underneath your clavicle bone, but they can't do that because the way my anatomy is set up. So that's why they had to stick the pacemaker battery down in my stomach area. Oh my goodness. Well, you just threw a whole bunch of terms out there that maybe some of my listeners don't know. So let me just back up for just a second. So she was talking about having VTAC. And some of you may know that better as ventricular tachycardia. And that's when the ventricles beat too rapidly. And then she also said SVT, which is supraventricular tachycardia, which so many of you who have a Fontan heart have some SVTs anyway. And if you have a few SVTs, like my heart warrior, it's something that they keep an eye on. But you don't want to have a whole bunch of different kinds of arrhythmias happening all at once, including bradycardia, which bradycardia is when your heart beats too slowly. So a pacemaker sounds to me like it was a life-saving device for you. Yes. So that's why they put the dual pacemaker in so that if I have any fast heart rates, it'll pace me out of it. And if I have any slow heart rates, it'll pace me out of it. So my pacemaker is set if I would get below 60, it'll start to pace. And then if I get above 150, it starts to pace. And now I'm pacing all the time. So it's just working all the time. Wow. Okay. So your pacemaker is working overtime to Mm -hmm. help you out. Are they talking to you about possibly needing to do something else in the future? So yes, the pacemaker comes with a nice app with your smartphone. So I got the Medtronic pacemaker. And through the app, I can keep track of how many years left. And according to it this morning, I have 13 years left till they will need to change the pacemaker battery. And then they can also go through that app and interrogate my pacemaker. They try to interrogate it every four months through the app. Isn't that amazing? You don't even have to go to the doctor for that. That's no. just, yeah, it's wow. amazing. And I don't usually feel it. Like they did it last week. And I was at work, didn't feel a thing. Really? Yes. That just blows my mind. So they're saying you've got 13 years before the battery needs to be replaced, which to me is pretty miraculous that a battery mm-hmm. can last that long. And hopefully they're not so concerned about the leads, that right. that's something that should last as well. During congenital heart defect awareness month this year, February, I had somebody come on and talk to us about some of these different devices and the tests that just the leads go through to make sure that the materials that they're using will be long lasting, will have flexibility because you bend your body. And so things have to be able to flex inside of you. It's just amazing to me. But I guess what I'm wondering is, so your incongestive heart failure, it sounds like if your heart is enlarged. Am I right about that? My heart is enlarged, and that's something that I don't think I got that diagnosis when I was three months old. I think that come later after I had the Fontana and Glenn. Mm-hmm. So your heart is enlarged, and they have the pacemaker on you. Are they thinking that you might need additional surgery in the future? Yeah, so they placed another wire, which would be for a defibrillator. So if I would ever go back into VTAC or have more VTAC or SVT, they can hook that wire up to where I have a defibrillator and that could shock my heart. 
out of those deadly rhythms. And then they also said, eventually, down the road, I would need a heart and a liver transplant because after I had the Fontan and Glenn, I developed cirrhosis of the liver due to the Fontan. So I have lots of scarring on my liver. My liver looks like I was an alcoholic and I don't even drink that much. Right. So for those of you who are listening, the condition that she's talking about is abbreviated as FALD or Fontan-associated liver disease. And this is something everybody who has a Fontan eventually gets some congestion on their liver because those people who have Fontans have more red blood cells and the liver has to process all those red blood cells and it takes a toll on the liver. So we're hearing now that people are living so much longer with these Fontan physiologies that for many of these Fontaners, when it comes to the point that they need a heart transplant, they figure they need a liver transplant as well because of the damage that the liver has had to endure by supporting a Fontan physiology. I'm assuming that with you being a congestive heart failure, you're on Lasix. I'm not on Lasix all the time. After I got my pacemaker, all my symptoms that I had before the pacemaker, they left. My migraines left. I was able to come off my monthly injection for migraines and my heart rate improved. But in the last couple of weeks, I noticed my fluid coming back in my belly. I get on the scale every morning and I noticed like a five to eight pound difference. Mm-hmm. I also started feeling like I'd be at work and I couldn't sit right. I felt like my belly was so full and distended and so uncomfortable that it would hurt my back. And that night, mm-hmm. my legs would hurt. So I contacted my local cardiologist, Dr. Dawkins, and he and his team put me on Blasix PRN. So a couple times a week, I will take it and it helped. And then I take aldactatone, 25 milligrams on a daily basis. And then my diabetic doctor put me on Jajardian's 10 milligrams, and that's supposed to help with CHF and prediabetes too. Okay, so CHF, for those of you who don't know, is congestive heart failure. And yeah, you've got quite a concoction of (laughs) drugs to try and help you. My friends who are Fontaners, especially my friends who make it to their 30s or their 40s, they tell me this is one of the hardest things that they have to go through is trying to stay out of congestive heart failure and to manage that medically with all of these different medications. The nice thing about the aldactone is that it's a potassium sparing diuretic. So it doesn't do to you what the Lasix does. And the Lasix just makes you so thirsty. Do they have you on a fluid restriction? No, surprisingly not yet. But I try to stick to water. I don't drink any pop. I try to drink my water and I try to eat healthy, but no, they don't. But they do have me check my potassium every couple of weeks to make sure it hasn't dropped with the increase of the Lasix being involved. Yeah. Well, those are all smart things to do. Well, you've endured quite a bit in your 30 plus years, my dear, but it sounds like you are quite the trooper. Are you working full-time or part-time? When I started having these symptoms before my pacemaker, I actually was working full-time. I ended up having to drop down to like 32 hours so I can still have insurance through my work. I only do eight-hour shifts. I will never be going back to the 12s. So yeah, I those are brutal. 
they were brutal before I had the pacemaker. So uh-huh. it was really bad. I would come home and just go to bed and my parents would not see me for a couple of days. I usually work about three to four eights a week and then maybe a one four hour shift. So yeah, I still work, still active. I try to walk my dog a mile every night. It depends on the humidity up here in Indiana. Mm-hmm. But I still try to stay active. That's important. Staying active is so important. And that will help you, hopefully, to stave off congestive heart failure as long as possible. Moving, drinking water. It sounds like you're doing all the right things. And I'm wondering what advice you would give to any of my listeners who have tricuspid atresia themselves or or the parents of somebody with tricuspid atresia. What do you think you could share with them that would improve their quality of life? Get involved in your diagnosis. I've always been taught not to wallow in your diagnosis. Get involved. Embrace your scar. You have so many groups on Facebook that you can follow. And then I'm also in the start of volunteering to get the Indiana chapter of Conquering Sea, a couple other girls here in Indiana. That's great. I think you're right. I think having that community around you really makes a big difference that you can be such an inspiration to them that you've made it into your 30s and you're working and going strong, walking your dog. I think that's just terrific. So I love that though. Get involved in your diagnosis. There are some people who are afraid to actually know the names of the surgeries and know the names of their conditions, because let's face it, it's a lot of multisyllabic words. Right. And it's not words that you normally hear. So it can be kind of scary. And I think you're right though. You have to be your own best advocate. And that's how you end up being strong and not being a victim, but being victorious. Yes. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for coming on the program today. Time just completely flew. You did such a great job. I really enjoyed myself and thank you so much for allowing me to share my story. Well, it was a wonderful story. I think there are so many lessons that we can learn from what you shared. So thank you for doing that. That does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review for our podcast on Apple Podcasts or YouTube or wherever you listen to our program. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have become inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard at any time, wherever you get your podcasts. A new episode is released every Tuesday from noon Eastern time.